our Heavenly Father, as we gather this morning to give you praise and to receive your word, we pray for and we ask for your forgiveness. Father, forgive us for failing to recognize and to live in light of the truth that there is but one race, the human race. Forgive us for recklessly ignoring this truth as we continue to separate ourselves based upon the color of our skin. Father, you have uniquely created each and every one of us. Therefore, you and you alone have determined the exact amount of melanin that we should have. For that, we give you praise. Oh, Lord. The racist sins of our nation needs to come to an end. The blood of Abel continues to cry out from the ground. His blood cries out against all who do evil towards others here on earth. His blood cries out for all injustices to be corrected. His blood cries out for righteousness to be rewarded. God, we, we thank you that the blood of Jesus proclaims an even greater message than the blood of Abel. The shed blood of our Lord and Savior proclaims justification, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Father, may your church lead our nation in loving all lives, the black lives, the white lives, the brown lives, and the lives of the unborn. Help us to live in full accordance to your word so that your glory may be made known and that others will be reconciled to you through faith in your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. 1 John chapter 3, verse number 11 serves as a thesis statement for this next section of Scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning. Verse 11 says, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. John's audience know that they have been commanded to love one another. So John is not sharing something new to the recipients of this letter. He is sharing something that they've already have known. John is just trying to shed light on what that actually means and how that's supposed to be carried out in life. And so verses 12 through 15, John's going to explain the contrast that exists between love and hate and murder. Then verses 16 through 26 will provide a positive example of love, and that's the cross as well as explain what such love looks like in everyday terms. He wraps it all up in 19 through 24 by discussing how we can have confidence despite our many failures. And so before telling his audience precisely what love is, John takes a moment to first tell them what love is not. And so beginning of verse number 12, it says, Not as Cain who was of the evil one and slew his brothers. And for what reason did he slay him? 
because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So, so Cain is the example of a life of hatred. Uh, we find this example in Scripture back in Genesis chapter 4. I'd encourage you to, to turn there if you would. Genesis chapter 4. Let me just read real quickly a brief section of Scripture from chapter 4 of Genesis. Beginning in verse number 1, it says, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived, and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was the keeper of flocks, but Cain was the tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told, his, uh, told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. And so uh, the, the life of hatred that, that, that John is pointing us towards and he's pointing us towards the example of the life of Cain. It's important to note uh, that Cain and Abel, they, they, they were both brothers. Being brothers, they had the same parents. And, and both of these men brought sacrifices to God. You need to know that, that Cain is not painted or portrayed as an atheist. He's portrayed as, as a worshiper. He, he brought a sacrifice unto God. And so the, there's a difference between the sacrifice that Cain brought and the sacrifice that, that Abel brought. And it wasn't the type of sacrifice that, that makes the difference. It was the manner in which the sacrifice was given. That was the difference in it all. And I don't have to speculate about that because Scripture tells us that was the difference. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 4, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So it seems clear that God must have given them some specific instructions that they were to follow in the worship of God. Now, now we don't have a record of these instructions. They're not contained within the book of Genesis. 
but here we see that Abel's sacrifice was acceptable. It was acceptable because it was given in full accordance to what God must have instructed. Cain's sacrifice was not regarded, was not looked upon. It was not accepted. Why? Because he ignored the instructions of God and chose for himself what it was and how it was that he was going to, to bring a sacrifice. Now, we're not told by what outward sign that the Lord accepted Abel's sacrifice or what sign it was that he rejected Cain's sacrifice. But we are told of the results. Abel went away from that worship moment with God's witness of his acceptance in his life. Cain, on the other hand, he went away angry, disappointed, head to the ground, his countenance fallen. God warned Cain that sin was crouching at the door like a dangerous beast. Back in Genesis chapter 4, verse number 7, he says, If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door and its desires for you, but you must master it. God promised that if Cain would obey him, if he would do well, then like Abel, Cain would enjoy peace. His countenance would be lifted up. But rather than repent, rather than confess, Rather than doing what God had commanded him to do, Cain decided to murder his brother. And Cain's attitude represents the attitude and the mindset that is present in our world today. The world hates Christ. For the same reason that Cain hated Abel. Because Christ reveals both the sins of the world and his righteousness. And so when the world, like Cain, comes face to face with reality and truth, there are really only two responses that are possible. Either they can repent, confess and change, or they can ignore, destroy, or try to discredit the one who has exposed their sin. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus makes it clear that the hatred of someone is the spiritual equivalent to murder. Just as a lustful eye is the spiritual equivalent to adultery. The only difference between hatred and murder is the outward act of taking a life. Because the inward intent is still the same. The only difference between hatred and murder is simply opportunity. Now this does not mean that hatred in the heart does the same amount of damage or destruction into the life of the one that hates or the, more, more so into the life of the one that is hated. And trust me, uh, your, your enemy would rather you hate them than they would for you to murder them. But in God's sight, hatred is the moral and spiritual equivalent to murder. Hatred, if it's left 
unbridled can lead to murder. And the fact that you have never actually murdered anyone, at least I think, making the assumption that you've never actually have taken the life of someone that should not make you proud, should not make you puffed up, nor should it make you complacent in your spirit. While you might not have murdered anyone, it asks you the question, have you ever hated somebody? Ever harbored bitterness, anger, resentment towards another individual? May you know that the antidote for hatred is love. When a hateful heart opens up to Jesus Christ, then and only then can it truly become a loving heart. And instead of wanting to murder others through our hatred, when we turn to Jesus Christ, we should want to love them and share with them the message of Jesus Christ. And so verse number 16 through 18, when we get to 1 John chapter 3, now uh, he, he explains what the opposite of love is. He, he gives us the negative example, and that is of hatred. Now he makes this transition in verses 16 through 18 to give us the positive example, and that is of love. And the example that he's going to point us to is the example of Jesus and the cross. Look at verse number 16. We know love by this, he, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in needs and closes his heart against them, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So Cain is our example of false love, whereas Christ is the example of true, genuine love. Jesus gave his life so that we can experience this truth. Every person, I'm pretty sure, at least every individual in this room, I am sure, is familiar with John 3.16. And the question becomes is, is, while we focus on John 3.16, how many of us pay close attention to 1 John 3.16? Oh, it's... It's awesome to experience the blessing of John 3.16, but it's even more wonderful to share the experience of 1 John 3.16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So as the ultimate example of love, John pointed to the cross where Jesus laid down his life for us. Then he adds that believers should be willing and should do the same thing for others. And so the question becomes, then, then what does it mean or what does it look like to lay down our lives for others? Well, it means things like we must be willing to, to give up our rights for the benefit of someone else. It might mean that, that we seek their best even when it causes us hurt. Even 
if it should cause us loss. It means putting their needs and interests above our own personal wants and desires. Real love is an action. It is not a feeling. Real love produces selfless and sacrificial giving. The greatest act of love is in the giving of oneself on behalf of someone else. It is in serving someone else without any thought or expectation of receiving something in return. Quite frankly, I think it is way easier for us to boldly proclaim that we would be willing to die for someone else. But are we even willing to live for them? To selflessly and sacrificially live our lives for the benefit of someone else? It is highly unlikely that any one of us in this room is going to face martyrdom for our faith. But all of us must give serious consideration to, to, to the question, are you willing to sacrifice who you are and what you have for the benefit of someone else? Are you willing to step in to help meet the need of another person out of the sacrifice to your own self? The test of Christian love is not simply in the avoidance of doing evil or doing bad things against other people. The, the test also includes doing good for one another, sacrificing for one another, serving one another. So, so true Christian love means loving in deed and in truth. That's the phrase that, that he uses Look back at verse number 17. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And then he says, little children, let us love not with words or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. So to love in word means simply to talk about it. But to love indeed means to do something about meeting the need of someone else. Example. It's easy to love through social media. To post something. To, to take a stand. But, but love must go beyond just words. It must take action. So don't just post something or tweet something do something to demonstrate that love. And so to love in tongue is the opposite of loving in truth. Uh, to love in tongue means to love insincerely. Uh, to love in truth means to love a person genuinely, from the heart, not just giving lip service to someone or to something. I think it's extremely important to know and to see that each member of the triune Godhead is involved in both the instruction and the fulfillment of the command, love one another. It is God the Father who commands us to love one another. 
It is God the Son that gives us the perfect demonstration of what that love is. And then it is God the Spirit who lives within us as believers to provide the love that He expects and requires from us. Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 5, in fact, why don't you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. I'll be there in just a moment. But Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 5, it says, And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So, God demands and commands for us to love one another. Jesus gives us the perfect example and demonstration of what that love looks like. And then the Holy Spirit fills us and empowers and enables us to carry that love out. In other words, what God expects from us, He provides in us so that it can be worked out through us. And so, to abide in love is to abide in God. And to abide in God is to abide in love. Uh, the point is this. Love is action. Righteous deeds in action. And righteousness is love. Loving deeds in action. And so you have your Bibles to, to Romans chapter 13. Look what Paul says beginning in verse number 8. He says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Wow. God commands it. Jesus displays it. And the Holy Spirit fills us and enables us to carry that command through our life. Paul, sorry, John wraps it all up by discussing how we can have confidence despite our many failures. So back to 1 John chapter 3. Verse number 19. He says, we will know by this, that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before him and whatever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Looking back at verse number 19 and that phrase that we will know by this, the by this refers to the previous verses. So therefore, as we love in truth, therefore, as we love genuinely, then we will have assurance. The phrase is we will know. What will we know? We will know that we are of the truth or our righteous life of being obedient to the commands of our fathers will give assurance of the salvation that we have. Belief and behavior are continually linked together. And obedience leads to assurance. 
So John is writing to a congregation that has been rocked by a number of people who have walked away from the church. And he's writing to them to encourage them, as well as to give them some instruction and insight into confidence. John understood that it is so common for some believers to have an overactive conscience. In light of God's high and holy command for us to love one another as Jesus Christ has loved us, some believers will have a tendency to recognize those shortcomings, those deficiencies in their lives. And even after confessing and repenting of those shortcomings, some believers will still be overwhelmed by feeling like they're terrible failures or, or that they're hypocrites. And their overactive conscience will, will limit them and will, will cause them to lack the assurance and confidence that they should have in life. This kind of self-condemnation, John wrote, should be met with the truth that God is greater than our hearts. In other words, our Heavenly Father is fully aware that true believers, even though we may be plagued with inconsistencies, true believers still have an underlying desire to obey Him and His command to love one another. And so what's the point of the passage? I think it's a reminder for us not to be overly hard on ourselves. Don't let guilt overwhelm you when, not if, but when you fall short of this command. Instead of focusing and being paralyzed on past failures, we should focus on the Father who knows your deep desire to do what is right. And when... Again, when you fail to love others as Christ has loved us, then you should repent. Confess that sin to the Father. Commit to walk in obedience. Look to Him for strength and for guidance. And know that He is greater than your heart and that He knows everything. And when you do this, then as a believer, you can confidently come before the Father, recognizing that His grace and His mercy is far greater than our guilt. Christians who remain guilt-ridden, who remain unsure of their standing before God, will have a tendency not to want to draw near to the Father, but will have a tendency to want to try to, as if it can happen, to flee from Him in His presence. So John was saying that because believers have this assurance, they can now approach God with confidence. They can come to God with, without fear. They can have bold confidence as they talk with the Father. And when believers approach God, they can trust that, that whatever it is that they ask of Him, their request, because they obey Him, that, that God will do the things and He will answer those things that please them. Let me help you understand what's happening here. This statement in verse number 22 is a reflection of what Jesus said back in John chapter 15, verse number 7. There Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So there's this, there's this expectation of abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in us that we walk in, in, in full reliance and, 
dependency and accordance to the will and to the Word of God. And so believers' requests will be honored by God when they are focused on completing the will of God. Jesus taught His disciples to pray that the will of the Father will be accomplished here on earth. As He's teaching them to pray, He says to pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's about praying in accordance to the will of God. And love for one another produces confidence before God. And confidence towards God gives us boldness in asking what it is that we need. This does not mean, let me be clear, this does not mean that you can manufacture answers to your prayers by doing good deeds to other people. That's not what this is saying. Rather, I believe what it's saying is that your love for one another proves that you are living in the will of God. And when you live in the will of God, you are prone to pray for the will of God. So living in the will of God, praying for the will of God, then and there you can have full confidence and assurance that God not only will hear that prayer, but He will answer that prayer in accordance to His will. That is a glorious truth for us to embrace. Verse 23 says, this is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as He has commanded us. The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. We know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. These two verses kind of serves as the apex to this to this section as believers that are actively engaged in doing good deeds, demonstrating love, putting love in action. That's like verse number 18. Then, then they achieve confidence before God in prayer. That's verse number 21. Because they are doing what God commands us to do. I mean, Jesus said it Himself. John 14, verse number 15. If... You love me, what? Keep my commandments. Do what I've instructed you to do. Be faithful in carrying out the commands of our Lord. Man, is, could it be any clearer that one of the greatest needs that our nation has today is for the church to love one another? To fully demonstrate the love of God? to selflessly and sacrificially meet the needs of other people. The greatest need our nation has is to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. We know that. We should be aware of that. And as we can see, the tension boiling over, the pain, the evil that still exists in our nation, Instead of that frustrating us and causing us to withdraw, it should be encouraging or motivating us to be willing to step out and to step into the mess of our world to speak the love of Jesus Christ. 
the church has been silent way too long. It's time for the church to do the right thing, to love all people. I said it in the prayer, and it's the simple truth. There aren't multiple races in our world. One. One race. It would all be traced back to one only thing that visibly we can say is different is the color of our skin. How dare us to judge others or to condemn others just because their shade is a little bit darker or lighter than ours. May the blood of Jesus cleanse us from our sin. May the Spirit of God Compel us to go and share the love of the Father. As we close, I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes as we pray. Before I pray, may I ask you just three quick questions. Questions that you can only answer for yourself. Question number one. Is Jesus worth dying for? Is he worth dying for? Question number two. Is he worth living for? It's one thing to say he's worth dying for. I think it's another thing completely to say, is he worth living for? Final question. What changes do you need to make in your life so that you can more fully live for him? A sin to confess, a commitment to make. What change do you need to make so that you can more fully live for him? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day, for your people, the blessing of having your word. God, I thank you for the selfless and sacrificial love that Jesus Christ displayed for all of us. Help us as your children to not just to receive that love in our lives, but to demonstrate that love in this world. May your spirit bring conviction Help us to figure out what changes we need to make in our lives. For every person that's here, Father, I give you thanks and praise that they gather together to worship you. Father, I recognize that some are watching or listening online, and God, I, I pray for them as well. Father, I, I'm aware that if they're watching or listening, they're, they're one of two categories. They're currently concerned about COVID-19 and out of caution and just unknown. They, they want to isolate themselves and protect themselves from large gatherings. And for them, Father, I pray that you give them peace, bless them, encourage and strengthen them in their faith and in their walk. But Father, there's another subcategory of people that are now using COVID-19 as a convenient excuse to, to re refuse to return and engage with the church. 
May your spirit bring conviction into their lives. But that they stop forsaking assembling together. God, help us all to, to live in full reliance upon you, to trust you. God, we thank you that we have life today. Father, may we no longer continue to waste our life on needless things. But God, may we fully give ourselves to serving you, serving one another, loving you, and loving one another. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.